0: Check it out. We're in Mark. We're going to be in chapter 2, so go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to it. As you're turning to it, um, let me make a couple of comments. Someone once called the passage that we're going to talk about today um, a, a passage about missions, because at the core of it's about people bringing their friend or friends to, to Jesus, and that really is what missions is, kind of, right? It's, it's you knowing people or you going to people and um, by God's grace helping them come to know and and understand enough about God the Bible and Jesus such that they would understand the, the gift of faith offered to them for the forgiveness of their sins and that they would come to faith in Jesus and that really is what missions is. A lot of times we think that we have to go overseas you know to some far off country to, to be a missionary but really in a, in a sense we we say it uh, in in our terms here, all of us are missionaries, okay? You all are supposed to be living missional lives right where you live and work and where you recreate. And we'll see a little bit of that happening in our text, but a whole lot more. So we're going to open up in chapter 2, going to read these uh, first 12 verses. So a lot of verses here today that we're going to be working through. Uh, And we're going to read these out loud together. So uh, read with me. And when he returned to Capernaum, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the day. Thank you for the gathering of your church. It's a new day. No sun, but we got a lot of rain. And, you know, we can, we can complain about rain sometimes because it sort of uh, derails our plans. Um, it makes us use accessories that we don't always use, like umbrellas. But if it's raining, it means that you have sent it and we need it. And so we thank you. Lord, we're here today because you've commanded us to gather as your church, not to forsake it, but to do it all the more uh, as we see the, the end of days approaching. And so we are here under your, uh, the authority of your word, doing what it says. But God, we're mostly here because we need you. Uh, and we confess that up front. I need you in, uh, in many ways, Lord, as I open the word and uh, uh, pretend to, to preach these words and make sense of them to your people. And so open, uh, open my mouth to help it speak articulately. God, I pray that you'd open all of our ears, to, that we might hear what the Spirit is saying, and open our eyes that we might see this text, a text that many of us have seen before in, 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 in passing and in reading and per, perhaps even in preaching before. And would you just uh, uh, illumine our, our hearts and our lives through it? And we pray that in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. All right, so a little bit of context as we're uh, crossing over the border into chapter 2. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus began to preach and teach uh, publicly. And the thing that Mark reveals, uh, of all the things that he reveals, is that people are astonished by his teaching. He teaches not like the, the most reputable teachers of that day, the scribes, the things that he says they carry such an authority that it attracts people not only to him but to his words in that first chapter, he casts out a demon out of one man in Capernaum, his his, his new hometown, and all of a sudden everybody in the whole town is breaking down his door to get healed Last week, Saju preached at the the closing of chapter one, and among the many things that Saju talked about, we saw that Jesus healed. A leper, And Jesus' closing words to the leper was to go to the priest so that the priest may formally uh, pronounce you as, as being clean in verse, versus unclean. And then he says to the leper, make sure you don't tell anybody about the source of your healing. Didn't work. You know how you like, tell a little kid, like, uh, well, dad, you know how like, something breaks or like, whatever you might be going out, like, don't tell your mom. Y'all, y'all know y'all have done that. Come on. All right, so this happens with the leper. He he doesn't shut up. He tells everybody that's anybody about Jesus so much so that Jesus had to almost go into hiding. He couldn't uh, he couldn't have an upfront public ministry in the in the larger towns anymore. And he didn't go into to seclusion, but he did. Um, Uh, relegate his ministry to smaller towns. And as we come to our text today, Jesus has apparently been hanging outside of Capernaum, which isn't a large town, but it would have been filled with a lot of people because it was a a coastal town full of fishermen. He's likely ministering in these smaller contexts and more obscure towns, and he's also taking advantage of a little bit of solitude time. But then he comes home, and we'll see what happens in verses one and two of chapter two. And when and when he returned to Capernaum, After some days, it was reported that he was at home. Interesting term that uh, Mark's gospel uses right there, at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. First things first, whose home was this? All right, so we've read previously in this gospel, but in other gospels, Jesus was born in where? Nazareth, right? And so Capernaum is not his original home uh, we, uh, we learn in chapter 1 that he makes this his new home, and he will base his ministry out of there for at least probably a few months, maybe even a year or two before he continues on and eventually ends up in Jerusalem. Also in Capernaum, that's where he gathered his his first disciples, uh, Andrew, Peter, uh, James, and John. Commentators say what Mark's gospel is calling uh, Jesus' home is likely Simon and Peter's home. If you remember last week in the, the former text that we looked at at the close of chapter one, Simon and Peter brings Jesus to his home and Jesus heals his mother-in-law. So this is likely Jesus, I mean, he's just a, an invited guest in Peter's home, which gives us a lot of context about the closeness of Jesus and Peter's relationship. And we learn from our text, crowds have gathered at the house And you know what they say about crowds, right? Do y'all know what they say about crowds? If you got a crowd, it only draws a bigger one. And so for whatever reason, they don't need cell phones or technology or Facebook or any of that stuff. People hear that Jesus is staying with Simon Peter, and they start flocking to the house. And soon it would have been impossible even to get through the door. There's people everywhere. In the house, outside of the house, pressing in, trying to get in. Uh, I wasn't a partier growing up, but I have a. Sometimes I have an imaginative mind, and I. I mean, I can count on less than four four fingers how many house parties I've gone to. But I know some of you in this room used to go to house parties. Remember how? Or, so the house parties that I've been a part to. You walk into the house. Somebody in the back says, "Yeah, I know what it means. I know what that's like." Uh, you, you walk into the house, and if it's a, if it's a hopping party, immediately you're like, man, there's a lot of people here. And then you notice like, the heat in the room from people just being in the room and possibly dancing because it's a party, right? You're like turning sideways and just trying to get by people. You're reaching over people to get to the snacks and the hors d'oeuvres or a little bit of drink. And if it's a real party and it's real hopping, there's probably a little bit of funk in there too. Right? I mean, I'm just. Those are the house parties, the two house parties that I went to. And so, very likely, this is not a house party, but it's got like a house party vibe to it. So, outside, there's like dust and noise and heat and disease, jostling and crowding. On in, and on the inside, guess what? It's the exact same thing. I mean, there's people everywhere. And For some reason, these people have all flocked, and of course the reason is is Jesus. Why are these people there? Um, Very likely, some are there legitimately because they heard about this Jesus who can heal. He's healed some people. He's cast demons out of a person. He's healed a leper, and the leper told everybody, and they have some pressing needs, and they want those needs to be met by this person named Jesus who they just want to meet. There's probably some who are curious. They've heard about the, the miracles. They've heard about the person, the things that he said, and they just want to see him. They want to hear what he said. There's probably some onlookers. You know how uh, you're driving down the interstate, somebody's had a wreck, and just traffic slows down for no reason. Just people being nosy. And so some people are there because they're being nosy. The religious leaders were there because they're being nosy. They're trying to figure out who is this man? Is this healing legitimate? and what are the things that he's saying, and why are people flocking to them? But there's, there's many reasons why all these people are there, but the, pe- the thing that Mark is bringing out to us, the place is packed with people. It's impossible to get in or out, and then comes some commotion on the roof. Look at verse 3. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, and when, uh, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. There's a lot going on that Mark actually doesn't tell us about, so I'm going to use my imagination, and I need you to imagine with me uh, as these four men trying to get through this crowd to bring their friend to to see Jesus. And so the entrance to the house was blocked. So Their houses weren't necessarily like our houses, but however the the interest would have been, they could not get through. And can you imagine? uh, So uh, I'm I'm a soldier uh, on the inside, not not on the outside exterior anymore, but after you spent 20, 24 years in the military, there's some part of you that's always a soldier. And I can imagine these four men being like troopers from the 82nd Airborne Division out of Fort Bragg, North Carolina, which I served 10 of my 20 years. Check it out. And here's the thing with the, with the trooper from the A2nd. If you, if you tell them what the mission is, they're likely going to get the mission done. It may not be pretty. They may use a lot of creativity. They might even do some things that are legal, illegal. However, if you tell them the mission and they tell them they've got to get it done, they're going to get it done. This is kind of what, what's going on <laughs> with these four gentlemen and their paralytic friends. We don't know a lot about them. We don't know a lot about the paralytic, but we know that for whatever reason, they brought their paralytic friend probably on a stretcher, and they're trying to get through the crowd. They can't get through. And you'd think this crowd would see a man on a stretcher, like, like just move out of the way and let him through. No, I want to see Jesus too, and you're, I mean, you need to wait your turn. I need my healing before you do. And so they can't, pre- they can't press through the door, and so they find, the, they find an alternate route. And in these days, the alternate route to get into a place would have been the roof. And and as Saji preached last week, the Palestinian houses were such that um, the roofs, uh, they're usually steps or some ladder-type structure that will allow you to get to the roof. And so very likely, these four gentlemen carrying the stretcher would have poked and prodded and got around somehow to the steps or the ladder, and then they would have, I mean, they would have labored to get their friend on a stretcher of some sort up those steps, or up that ladder to the roof. Imagine how difficult that might have been, just the dead weight of somebody on a stretcher. They would have gotten to the top of the roof, and they would have taken a break, and then they would have began the hard work of figuring out, all right, so we're on the roof. How are we going to get them to end it, like be near Jesus? Guess what they decided to do? They decided to break through the roof. Now, it's not as big of a deal as it sounds to us. Their roofs weren't like our roofs of shingles and, and wood structure and, and all that. Uh, a Palestinian roof would have been made of beams interlaced with sticks and reeds. It would have had thatch on it, and on top of the thatch would have been several inches of mud. And so uh, it would not have been hard to pound, dig, or scratch their way through the roof. But here's the, here's the thing. Um, their roofs were much like our decks. So like you said last week, this, this happens even in India today where people, houses will be crowded or hot, and they will actually go on top of the roof to sleep or rest or relax. And in that day, roofs were used for the same, uh, same, uh, same reason. They would go and relax there. They would go receive friends there. They would go to eat on their roofs. And just so happens, these four men with their paralytic paralytic friend, get to the roof. They dig all the way through, scratch themselves, probably uh, tied some rope or string or whatever to lower him down uh, uh, through the roof into the facility uh, to see Jesus. And then we come to verse 5. Verse 5 is the, the central verse in our text. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. There's a lot in, in this verse, and it, it needs to be a lot in this verse. I want you to, uh, we're going to take it apart a little bit a uh, little bit at a time. First, what I want you to do, again, is imagine. Imagine all these four men and all they had to do to get their friend to Jesus. Think of what the paralytic had to agree to. I mean, he's on a stretcher probably. He's probably got like straps tying him down at at some point so that they could get him to the roof and all that. He's already a person that suffered much in his life. And he, all right, guys, all right, my friends, you know, Jimmy, Bob, John, Andrew, whatever their names were, uh, do whatever you got to do. I want to get to Jesus as much as you want me to get to Jesus. And so I'll take it. Think of the persistence that they had to put into place. To find their way around the crowd and not give up. And I can just see myself saying, well, the doors closed, the doors blocked. Uh, this just wasn't God's will for today. Maybe I'll just wait until all these, maybe they, well, I'll wait till the crowd dissipates, or let's just come back tomorrow and, to, and see if Jesus uh, will, will visit us then. But that's not what they did. Think of their creativity. I think more than creativity, it's just a little bit of desperation. And we don't know if it was the paralytic that convinced his friends to be this desperate for him, but there's some desperation there that they're thinking, you know, we just need to get to see Jesus. But I also think there's a little bit of sacrifice here, the potential sacrifice of what happens if they get to the roof, crawl their way through, get the paralytic down in the presence of Jesus, and Jesus doesn't do anything, doesn't even address him, dismisses him, doesn't Give him any kind of an inkling of a look or, of course, the healing that he wants. And then they just they just I, I didn't say that word, they just messed up somebody's roof, right? They just like clawed their way through somebody's roof, probably a, like a six-foot or seven-foot hole in the roof, and who's going to pay for that? That required a little bit of sacrifice. But what? Mark's gospel wants us to know about this is these men's faith. Jesus saw their faith. He saw something in what they were doing um, that moved him, I think, with compassion that led him to speak to the man and, and offer him something. And I think that's significant in our text. The, the text doesn't say this, but this is the word that I think can be associated with what's going on here as well. It's the word love. They, they, these men don't actually have faith. They have faith somehow that Jesus can help their friend. But there's love here, because these four men are actually thinking of someone else before they think of themselves. I mean, and to a great degree. Think of all that they went through to get their friend around the crowd, up to the roof, through the roof, and into the presence of, that was a lot. And for many of us to do something of, of, that's, that's, that's that costly, that requires that much persistence, that much creativity, and that much effort. I mean, we would give up after the first couple steps, right? It's like, well, it's this, this was not meant to be. You might need to be a paralytic for a couple more days. They did that, and they showed faith and love. But here's the thing that sticks out mostly in this verse. It's this man's greatest need. And here's the focal point of our text, of our, of our passage here. It's forgiveness. Jesus offered him forgiveness. You know, on the surface, this text is just about basic healing. We don't know much about the paralytic. We don't know how old he is, how long he's been in this plight. We don't know anything about these four men, although uh, we can suggest that they obviously know this, this, this paralytic. Perhaps they're friends or relatives. We know what they probably had to do because of history to get to the roof. Jesus doesn't seem surprised or bothered that they've crashed through this roof and that they're now in the presence of him. He actually heals the man, but there's a sub-narrative in our text that goes way beyond this initial healing. And many of us, if we read this today, we'd just say, you know, yeah, Jesus heals somebody. He heals a paralytic. That's, that's a pretty cool miracle, but isn't that just what Jesus does? And that would be, it wouldn't be wrong to say that about this text, but there's a whole lot more. Because the sub-narrative is not that Jesus only heals a man, but here's what he does. He tells this man that he's forgiven of his sins. That's significant. He tells the man he's significant, he's forgiven of his sins. What's important about this is that it's one of the most important messages that Jesus had in his whole ministry, and it's still one of the most important messages that Jesus has for us, for our lives today. So what what I want you to do, don't close your eyes like I have my eyes closed because I'm thinking as I'm talking, think about what you might call your greatest need. Like right now, in your life, perhaps in your kids' lives, in your family's lives, think as close to, to proximity to you as possible. What is your greatest need? If your house is like mine, there's a whole bunch of people, you know, three or four or five, how many people are in your family, and all of us, through our actions and through our words, are screaming, shouting all the time those things that we need, and we're shouting them to each other. If you are a family with little kids, your kids are shouting their needs. Mommy, I need some juice. Mommy, I got to go potty. If you're out with the errand with Daddy, Daddy, there's Toys R Us. They're going out of business. Can you go get me that toy that I need, right? And then parents, when your kids grow up, they don't stop shouting their needs. In fact, their needs just get more complex. Uh, mom, not mommy anymore, it's mom, uh, I got a project due. I need you to take me to Staples so I can get some uh, supplies for my project. And then they get home, they do their project and say, hey, dad, I got to be at this place and I need to be there five minutes ago. Can you take me? Regardless of what dad is doing right now. <laughs> right? But here's the thing. Adults, we have needs too. So I was in Wegmans. I'm always in Wegmans. <laughs> By the way, the, the, the tumors just moved this week. I'm exhausted standing up here. The tumors moved. We got a new house. Um... We bought a townhouse over in Island Creek, um, so we don't live across the street anymore. We live a mile that way. So we're still in the neighborhood. We wanted to stay within uh, the Hayfield School District so our kids wouldn't have to change schools. And so we are, our stuff is in the house. We're not set up, so don't come to visit us for a month. Uh, we're, we're closer to Wegmans. So, so pray for us. So take it out. Um, so I'm in Wegmans. This is maybe in a, a week ago, two weeks ago. And I text Larissa. I always text her when I'm in Wegmans. All right, so do we need anything from Wegmans? And so I text her. uh, I I text her a specific text. I said, do the kids need ice cream? And and so, of course, behind that question was a personal need. (laughs) And so my wife, being the, the vegan, just like, you know, restrictive food person that she is, she's like, NEED, all capital letters, exclamation point, question mark, question mark, and then she waited, and then she, then she put, no. <laughs> I was like, who is this woman? Uh, so in most cases, you know, Jeff would just ignore that and go ahead and get what the kids needed. They, he would have gotten some ice cream. But in this case, I knew we were moving, so I was like all right, so they don't need ice cream, I won't get any. So we have adults, we have, I mean, adults have needs too. And, and here's the thing, our understanding of needs starts early, it starts when kids are, you know, just age, they're uh, with Robert in his hands. He's, he's learning what his needs are, and he's learning how to express his needs through crying and, and whimpering, and you know, and moving, and soon he'll start articulating his needs with his words and with his actions. And the thing is that our understanding of our needs uh, we make sense of the world as we as we are understanding uh, what we need. Needs are really important. It's not that we're not supposed to have needs. I mean, they are important. And, and, and how you decide what you need and how you get what you need is one of the more important things that you'll have to figure out over the course of your life. And at some point, your needs can surpass you. You can be so fixated on your needs that... You're getting stuff that you think you need, but you don't really need it. That's another subject for another day. Here's the thing. Counselors and psychologists talk a lot about needs, and one of the most popular psychologists was Abraham Maslow. You've heard of this in your, uh, your high school or your college psychology class. Abraham Maslow, uh, in 1943, came up with some research that changed the conversation on how we process our needs. He called it the hierarchy of needs. And what he's doing here is he, he comes with a pyramid that articulates the most important things that we need in our lives in order for you to be happy. I'm going to show them up here. All right, so this, this, this slide is graphically challenged. All right, I didn't have time to give you a pyramid. So typically, you see Abraham's hierarchy of needs as a hierarchy. It's going to be a pyramid, all right, with basic needs at the bottom and then uh, our, you know, most superior needs at the top. You're not going to read it like that. I'm just going to, like, give it to you sequentially from top to bottom. All right. It starts with basic basic needs. What are our basic needs? Air, water, food, shelter. These are bedrock needs. We all need these. You need these to live. If you don't have some of these things, you will die. And nothing else matters in terms of all your other needs if these aren't met first. Then you have safety needs. These are physical security and health. I would add here emotional health. This, uh, This is... This is why we lock our doors and drive cars with airbags. These are like safety kinds of stuff. Social needs would be third. These are friends, family, relationships, and intimacy. This tells us the importance of community and relationships. We need people in our lives, even if you are an introvert. Next, we have esteem needs. This is acceptance, affirmation, and significance. In other words, what good is it if you have people around you that actually don't like you or that hate you? All right, we sort of need people that give us love and care despite some of our idiosyncrasies, some of the things about us that aren't as pleasant, people that know you to the fullest and still like you and are willing to be around you. And lastly, self-actualization. This is the hardest one to kind of describe in in his paradigm. Um, I like to call it this. It's the freedom to form your own values and make decisions. It is tricky because uh, this is a a of course, and I think at that the, the essence of what Maslow was trying to say is we need to be able to form our own values and beliefs and have some autonomy of choice, basically have freedom. And once we have that, we feel like our needs have been met. All right, so y'all seen these before. Think about this. If you have all these needs met, Abraham Maslow is saying you should be a happy, healthy, functioning human being in society. That, that's what he's uh, here, But I think this is where he fell short because some of you in this very room and definitely many of us who live in the nation's capital that come here um, with gifts and skills and training and all this stuff and, uh, you know, work for contractors and for our government and for the military. I mean, we have a lot of things that we need. You can have a big house. You can have a family that loves you. You can feel safe. You can feel like you are have the freedom to, to, to not only accept your own values, but to live them out. You have freedom in your life, but you can still feel like you don't, you're not satisfied, that you're not free to, to live as you're supposed to. And so what this says is these needs alone aren't enough to make us happy. So Abraham Maslow, um, although he come up with a, comes up with a, a really good paradigm, I don't think it, it meets the, the need. And this is where modern science and technology testify to what Jesus is actually saying here thousands, thousands of years before Abraham Maslow came up with his hierarchy of needs. And here's what Jesus is saying. There is a greater need. And that's what's going on with the paralytic. So all that is the, to come back to our, our paralytic guy. He has a need. He has an express need. What's that need? He wants healing. On the outside, he has uh, an infirmity in his body that that won't let him do the things that um, that a normal person would, would be be able to do. I mean, and perhaps you have someone that's in this kind of a situation in your family that you've seen up close and personal. But yeah, for all intents and purposes, this guy was trapped in his own body. He had no freedom of maneuver. He couldn't walk. He couldn't work. He likely was a beggar. He had to depend on his friends for everything that got done in his life. He had no freedom even to observe the religious laws of his own culture. And so I'm sure the paralytic and his friends are thinking, man, if we can just get him to Jesus, Jesus is going to do the very thing that he needs for him to be happy. And what's that? Healing. Yeah, guess what? Jesus bypasses what might have been the like presenting temptation to heal him and cut straight to the man's core need. Jesus forgives him. There's nothing in our text that suggests that the paralytic wanted to be forgiven. In fact, commentators would say the, the emotions behind this scene, the, the, the paralytic and definitely his friends probably had their mouths almost like, ah, He forgave him, at. We didn't want forgiveness. They might have been angry. Are a little bit shocked that Jesus said those words like, well, we, we went through all of this effort to get our friend to see Jesus so that he could heal him, like make him, make his body move again. And all Jesus does is forgive him. Uh, Jesus, no thank you. Maybe tomorrow. Can we get healed first? But that's not what Jesus does because Jesus saw beyond the man's body and saw the deeper need. What was his deeper need? He needed relief from guilt. The, the, his chief need was to receive forgiveness of sins. And folks, guess what? That's not just this paralytic's need. That's not his chief need. That's your chief need as well. We all need to be forgiven. Here's the overarching text, truth of this text for all of us. We all need to be forgiven. That's the first thing. And Jesus can provide that forgiveness. If you hear nothing else that I have to say, that's what this text is telling you. We all need to be forgiven, and Jesus can't provide that forgiveness. Let's talk about these two things real quickly. We all need to be forgiven. The truth of our lives is that we're all broken and sinful. Several years ago, there was a newspaper article in Britain, and the newspaper asked, what's wrong with the world? And uh, famous uh, British journalist G.K. Chesterton penned one of the shortest replies ever written. He wrote 10 words in reply to an article asking the question, what's wrong with the world? And here's what he said. He said, dear sir, I am yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. What was he saying? He's saying uh, the world is, is messed up. And a lot of times we can look external to us to try and find the reason for what's going on, not only in our lives, but in the, in the world at large. And he says, you don't have to look out there, look right here, I, I am the weakest link. It is, it is I, right? We all should be doing that. And what Chesterton is affirming is the, the, the Christian doctrine that talks about original sin. Original sin says that evil and corruption and all of life's ills and heartaches of today's world doesn't come from the environment or something external to us. The root cause is with us, us human beings. And it stems from the corrupt and deformed stature of our hearts. We don't have to look very far to, I mean, to, to verify that, right? Sin is all around us. It's in the terrorists that for whatever crazy reason decides to take a truck and ram it into a packed market full of people in one of, uh, in one of the world's biggest cities. It's in a person that would go to the lengths of taking advantage of, of young people in sexual manners. It's in a spouse that chooses to abuse verbally or physically his, his or her spouse. It's also the sin within us, and that's the hardest part to, to, to get a grip on. And some of it's out of our control. Paul says it like this, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I do, I don't want to do which means that we sin in two ways. We sin by commission. We do things purposefully that we should not do. We, al- we also sin by omission. There are things that we should be doing that we don't. Sometimes we know them and sometimes we don't. And those things are all at play, but it, it lends to the sinfulness of our lives, which lends to the sinfulness of our world. It's in our lustful and greedy desires, but it's also in our good intentions. Do you realize that even our good intentions are laced With sin, it's like me going to Wegmans and saying, "Sweetie, do the kids need ice cream?" And I was really purposeful about how I how I how I wrote that. That's the sin in us. The Christian worldview emphasizes that though the world was made good and holy, uh, good good by a holy and just God, the earth went into decline the moment man rebelled against God. Sin is like a virus. You know, it it gets in us. It got in us, you know, through Adam and Eve. It distorts everything that is a part of God's created order such that everything is tainted. Everything that you are a part of in this world is tainted by sin. Marriage, business, government, knowledge, religion, family, everything is affected. And because we have such a pervasive problem, this, this original sin thing, we need a pervasive uh, remedy. And, and God provides that remedy through the process of redemption. God comes and he, he gives us Jesus through, the, process, through the, the, the plan of redemption. And Jesus goes not for the external nature of ourselves, but he goes for our heart. We need a complete heart transformation. That's what happens when you come to faith in Jesus. You get the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit starts to work on you a little a little bit at a time, a little issue at a time. It takes a lifetime for God to do the work he wants to do in us, for him to transform our heart. And when we have a transformed heart, then it transforms all the things that are sinful about us so that it would ultimately transform our world. Imagine what the world would be like if everybody knew that they needed forgiveness and Jesus could provide that forgiveness. It would change us from the inside out and the world, hallelujah, would be changed. And that's what God's plan of redemption does that's what Jesus accomplished on the cross. When Jesus comes in Mark 1:15, he says the, "the the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. The good news is that God has come. He sees the sinful brokenness of humanity and its effect on our lives. And God knows that the remedy is not in us. It's not in the creation. It has to come from him. What does he do? He sends the second person of the Trinity. God sends himself in the form of Jesus to invade our world, to wear our skin, to live like we have lived, and to do it perfectly because God is a holy and just God that requires perfection. Ultimately, when we sin, we are sinning against God himself. And so it takes God to forgive sin. That's what's happening in our text. No one can forgive sins except for God. So guess what Jesus is saying? I'm it. I'm God. In biblical language, here's what, here's what happens when, when Jesus dies on the cross for our sin. Jesus takes the debt of our sin. He diverts the wrath of God due, that due, that's due us upon himself. He ransoms us by the cross to forgive us and make us right with God. When you sin... As small or as large as your sins are, you are sinning against God himself. And so God is the offended party. It takes God to forgive us. And that's the message of our text. We all need to be forgiven, and Jesus can provide that forgiveness. And of course, it's these exact words about forgiveness that gets Jesus in trouble with the religious leaders who happen to be, for whatever reason, in the crowd, sitting down, seeing this whole thing unravel. Look at verse 6 through 12. We're going to end end here in these last few verses. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? Why is he blaspheming? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say. Which is easier like this. All right, there's a lot, obviously, in those texts. I'm going to reduce it down to to three things. The first thing, uh, it would be an understatement to say that the scribes um, were disturbed by Jesus' words. In fact, from their perspective, and their perspective is right, he was blaspheming, right? He was was attributing God-like qualities to himself, which would have been wrong to do unless he was God. And so his words were dishonoring, they were disrespectful to God. They were blasphemous. In the Old Testament, this would have been, would have been an offense in Le- Leviticus 24 that was punishable to death by stoning. And so by telling the paralytic that he was forgiven, Jesus would have, was, in effect, declaring deity upon himself. And the scribes caught him on it. Um, because in Jewish thinking, not even the Messiah, only God, could forgive sins. So the scribes were actually right. Jesus' words were blasphemous. That is, unless, unless Jesus is God. And of course, that's what he's saying. Here's the second thing. In verse 10, Jesus introduces a specific title that becomes one of his favorite designations about himself. He calls himself the Son of Man. We'll see this this title 81 times in the Gospels, and Jesus Jesus' use of it comes from the Old Testament book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7 Um, Daniel is seeing a vision, and the vision is of uh, uh, a deity-like figure, an eternal figure. And he's given authority and dominion and judgment over all. And people are coming to him. They're bowing down to him. Nations are are uh, in the vision serving him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Of course, Daniel is being given uh, an eternal picture of the eternal son of God. He's seeing a vision, of course, of Jesus. And so by mentioning the words son of man, his Jewish listeners would have known, here's what, I mean, this guy is, is talking about the Messiah. He's defining who the Messiah is and what the Messiah comes to do. And, and here's, here's where the scribes would have been just, like, put in their seats. He's saying that he is God, that, that this divine heavenly figure who will receive an everlasting kingdom is himself. But the religious leaders assumed that uh, the Son of Man would come, not just with authority, but come with judgment. And so th- he's not coming like they thought he was supposed to come. But what Jesus does here is he says, hey, I'm, not coming. I'm coming with authority. I'm not necessarily coming to judge right now. I'm coming to forgive. And they would have been shocked by that. And he would ultimately, of course, do that on the cross. Here's a third thing to note. It's that Jesus proves to scribes and to this crowd that he can do both. He can both heal and forgive. And this is verse 9 and 10 of, of your text. Commentators say that this is probably one of the most difficult texts in the, in the Bible, definitely in this passage, because it, it can have multiple answers to it. And, and, and what, what's happening here in, in verse 9 is Jesus tells the man, uh, he asks the question, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and take up your bed and walk? And really, there are two trains of thought. The firstly, Anybody can say, <clears throat> your sins are forgiven. You all could say that here in this room. You could say it to anybody that offends you, right? But here Jesus basically is, is, is telling them, anybody can say those words, but not everybody can heal. I mean, have you ever tried to heal someone and like, yeah, you pray for them, like, Lord, please heal. I mean, we, don't even, we, we have no power in and of ourselves to heal, and so Jesus says, so to prove to you that I have power to forgive, I'm just going to heal the man. And in verse 11, what does he do? He says, hey, take up your bed and walk, go home. But here's un- another way to look at this, this text. It's definitely harder to affect the forgiveness of sins than anybody can imagine. So Jesus is putting the, he's putting the highlight on what he particularly can do as the Son of Man. He says, you guys don't really know what it takes to forgive somebody of sins. Yeah, you can politely excuse someone that's offended you, but forgiveness of sins is relegated to God and God alone. So much so that in a few short days and years, I'm going to allow myself to be uh, chained and beaten and pinned to a cross, and I'm going to die on that cross for your sins. And that's exactly what it takes to forgive you of your sins. And in this, Jesus, in effect, is is announcing at the very beginning of his ministry that he would be going down a path to death in our place for our sins. You got all that? All right, I'm going to summarize and I'm going to be done. Here's a summary. Here's what you should have gotten from all that I've talked about. Here's what's really going on in our text. There's a paralytic and his friends, they come to Jesus, and they tell him what they really need. And what do, they, what, is that, what do they think they really need? Healing. Jesus says, yeah, I'm willing to take care of that for you, but even if I meet that need for you, even if I give you the very thing that you think you need, you actually have a greater need. Because after I give you, after I fix this healing, you're going to come, I and mean, there's going to be more stuff that you're going to say you need. There's, there's, there's this inexhaustible, Um, pool of things that we think that we need. We're never satisfied. We have this insatiable appetite for needing things. So I'm going to give you, I'm going to satisfy the greatest need in your life. And what's that? I'm going to forgive you. You need something done about your brokenness and your sin, and that requires me to forgive you. And I think the thing is, all of us in this room need to realize that we need that same thing. We need Jesus' forgiveness for our brokenness, like this paralytic who brought uh, whose, whose friends brought him to Jesus in a missionary-like fa- uh, fashion. We often think we know what our greatest needs are in any moment. But, you know, a lot of times, most of it is just focusing on our circumstances. If only I lived in the mountains, because the cost of living here in D.C. is, is like, exorbitant. If only I had more money so I could buy a bigger house with a bigger yard and bigger car, the double car garage and all that. If only I came from a better family. If only my dad spoke kind, uh, more kind to me. If only my mom had warmer, uh, warmer words towards me. And Jesus is, is he's taking all of that and pushing it to the side and says, you know, those things are inconsequential. They don't mean a, a, a thing. Jesus is saying, even if all these things were in place and perfect, guess what? You're not perfect. You never will be. Just like this paralytic, your greatest need is for Jesus himself. You need his forgiveness. And my last question, do you see Jesus like that? Do you see him even like these, these four men and the paralytic, as someone that can meet your need, or do you see him as someone who can satisfy Your greatest need. If you're a Christian here today, you're in no less need of this greatest need than someone who doesn't know Jesus and is far away from him. We sin every day, multiple times a day. You do. I do too. And we need Jesus' forgiveness. And definitely, if you're not a Christian here today, The great offer of this text, there's one that's that's able to satisfy your greatest need. And he he did it by lifting himself up on a cross and dying in your place for your sin to to, to give you the greatest gift that could ever be given. Forgiveness, reconciliation with God, and an opportunity to, to live with him eternally. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that it would reach those parts in our hearts, in our ears, and our minds that would make a difference and it would leak down to our hearts and it would begin uh, the transformation that we need. Bless the hearing and the receiving of your word by by your church. And I pray that in his name. Amen.